0: My mission is simple to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I've been with my friends. I'm just trying to help you make some money. <laughs> My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate, put days like this in perspective. Call me 1 800 743 CBC or tweet me at Jim Cramer. We spend so much time criticizing the Fed that, frankly, it's disconcerting if you ask me. If you listen to conventional wisdom, you think that Jay Powell can't do anything right. Whenever something good happens with inflation, we're told it's nothing to do with the Fed. But anything bad falls right at the feet of Fed Chief Jay Powell. Even today, with oil coming down gigantically, we're told it has nothing to do with the Federal Reserve's attempts to slow down the economy and everything to do with China using less oil. These guys cannot catch a break. Even when the Dow jumps 416 points, s gains 1.56 percent, and the Nasdaq vaults 2.59 percent. But you know who rarely ever gets any heat? Congress. Congress. Surprising because it's one of the most consistently hated institutions in America, regardless of which party running the show. I spent a huge amount of time pushing for the CHIP Act. That was a $52 billion bill to promote domestic spending manufacturing so we wouldn't be totally hostage to an industry that's mostly based on the other side of the Pacific. Yes, Taiwan, where there's such a big hoopla about the speaker going to. Look, we got a global uh, semiconductor shortage, so I figured this bill was a slam dunk. We just needed Congress to make it less expensive for companies to build semiconductor foundries in America. I was so thrilled this thing passed. Until I found out the bill, now called the Chips and Science Act, would be $280 billion, not $52 billion. Turns out this was what's known as a Christmas tree bill, meaning the court legislation was so popular they realized you could get away with attaching all sorts of other ass and gimmies. Look, I'm not a deficit hawk, OK? But it is—it's it's just stupid to spend all that money when all we needed was semiconductor incentives, Then there's the Orwellian-named Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which is really just a slimmed-down rebranding of Biden's Build Back Better stimulus bill. And man, if you're worried about inflation, these big spending bills are not the way to go. Personally, I think the Fed can tame inflation, but it drives me berserk that the same people who won't stop breaking J. Powell over the coals for not doing enough to fight inflation rarely have anything critical to say about Congress, which at this point may be the chief reason why we have a lot of inflation. Say what you will about the Fed. They've raised interest rates dramatically to get inflation under control. Meanwhile, Congress is still in money printing mode. You think we got a labor shortage now, white-collar labor shortage? Blue-collar labor shortage? Where the heck are we going to find the engineers or the builders for these projects in the Expanded Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act? Private industry is already desperate for these people. Do you know that Raytheon alone needs 5,000 engineers right now and they can't find them? You also need a huge number of Earth movers. And Caterpillar, we learned just yesterday, can't make them in time because they're hampered by supply chain issues, which means they'll end up raising prices just when the Fed needs to hold the line. I can go on and on. I know all the industries that will be impacted and the ones where there's little hope of finding more workers. Do not get me wrong. I did push hard to get the semiconductor bill passed because I was so concerned about Taiwan's vulnerability. We can't let them be our sole source for expensive chips that are needed to build sophisticated weapons when China seems to, so eager to invade. It was a huge victory for Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. She's a hero to me, a hero for heroic efforts to get semiconductors built right here. But where did the other $230 billion come from? This economy can't handle that inflation spur. The whole thing is an embarrassment. Which brings me to tonight's homily. You know, 15 years ago, our economy was about to fall off a precipice. The Fed kept tightening, tightening, tightening. 17 consecutive rate hikes over the previous three years. And I came on air on CNBC to talk about the market and instead just couldn't take it anymore. I knew the Fed was totally out of touch. They were crushing the economy when they thought that the economy needed to cool down. I've been talking to the heads of the largest mortgage companies, banks, and some of the top five brokers. They were begging me to go out and explain. They were going to go under, along with many others, because the Fed was just raising, raising rates too aggressively. I needed their attention. I wanted to stop things so badly because it was obvious to me that America's financial institutions were actually all about to collapse if the madness just continued. I was younger, of course, and the people from my class at Goldman and from Harvard were all at the tops of those firms these days. And you know what? They were all quietly begging, begging me behind the scenes to speak out, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And finally, I couldn't take it anymore, so I did. I took on the Fed, and it was a widely watched moment, the most prescient of my career. Take a look. My people have been in this game for 25 years, and they are losing their jobs, and these firms are going to go out of business, and he's nuts. They're nuts. They know nothing.
1: Kramer. I
0: have not seen it like this since I I went five bid for a half a million shares of Citigroup, and I got hit in 1990. This is a different kind of market, and the Fed is asleep. Sleep. Well, it didn't do any good. Things crashed. But I gave it a good college try. A lot of people said I was off my meds. Even someone, I used to work on a morning show at 7 o'clock one. Anyway, now we find ourselves at another juncture. And this time, it's not the Fed that knows nothing. It's Congress. They know nothing! They know nothing! They know nothing! These bills could create a level of wage inflation that will make the Fed's job much more difficult and keep inflation raging. In fact, they're pouring gasoline on the fire, and they won't stop. My one consolation, it does take the government forever to start any of these projects. So the slow pace of the federal bureaucracy might be the only thing that can save us from ourselves. That said, I think commodity inflation, as I said for the last couple of weeks, has peaked. And anyone who disagrees with me must be out of their mind and can't read the paper or the web or whatever the hell you can find it. One of the Fed heads went to the supermarket the other day, stopped trading, and said she saw the pain. Wow, hold it. The supermarket is? The house of pain. Are you kidding me? Sure, the supermarket's filled with overpriced food, but that's actually going to come down. It's why? Because the real cost of food is the cost of the paper and the plastic that surrounds it, and those are rolling over definitively. You need to look at the ingredients fed people, not the price tags. Hey, by the way, same goes for a house. Mortgage rates have spiked so much that we're about to have a glut. The bank stocks are telling you that too. Just like the oil stocks are telling you where oil's going, and the chemical and paper stocks are giving up the ghost. How can they not see this? Because, like when I said, they know nothing in 2007, and the Fed officials all the way, by the way, had a good laugh at me, checked the transcript. These people do not know enough about what drives commodity inflation. Unfortunately, the intractable portion of this economy is not the commodities anymore, it's the wage inflation. And the Fed now has to hammer private industry. Because the government will be the largest nominal buyer of labor that's already been bid up by private industry. Don't get me wrong. I want people to make a lot of money. I don't want people to lose their jobs or their homes if the Fed is to crush the private sector with much higher interest rates because the Congress keeps spending. I have no idea how Jay can stop the trillions of dollars in spending just when we have the lowest unemployment rate in decades. The bottom line, I am still a bull. I felt bullish since June when I saw commodities were going in the right direction. And I'd be very confident about wage inflation too, if not for Congress. They know nothing! If the rebranded stimulus bill doesn't pass, we've got nothing to worry about. But if it does, we can only hope that it takes years and years for the government to put that money to work. And once again, when it comes to Congress, they know nothing! Paul in New Jersey, Paul.
2: Hi, booyah, Jim. Booyah! This is Paul from Park Ridge, New Jersey, formerly from New Providence.
0: All right, fair Um, enough. You're my neighbor. Yes, okay. All of my
2: holdings pay dividends, but I'm considering buying Alta,
0: which doesn't pay a dividend. What's your long-term view on it, and should I break the mold of not... Uh, okay. We were all discussing Ulta being down so big today, and I've got to tell you, Paul, I think it's an opportunity. It's incredibly well-run chain, and you know what? We spent some time with Dave Kimball, who's the CEO. I think he's doing quite a good job, so I'd go for it. Uh, Dennis in Connecticut, Dennis, Jim, big booyah to you. Want to thank you we for right everything you do for us, little guys. Good man. Uh, my question is about the defense sector. Two months ago, the war was all over TV. Since then, we haven't heard nothing. Uh, you don't see nothing on TV. The, the gains that we made in the defense sector, we gave back. And it just seems like it's flat. Would you stay with Raytheon in this? Uh, Absolutely you- stay with Raytheon. I think Greg Hayes is doing a terrific job. Remember, they're more than just defense. I think that is a very good start. Bye, bye, bye. I keep it. Let's go to Paul in Texas. Paul. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. Booyah, Paul. What's going on? Oh, not much. Just, uh, you know, I wanted to talk to you about Ferrari. I mean, you know, being that we
2: expect uh, consumer spending to come down later in the year, would it make sense to invest in a Ferrari or would you look elsewhere at more economical options?
0: Oh, I like Ferrari very much. I wish I had my red Ferrari jacket that my wife makes so much fun of me for because it's a little tight. But you know what? I think that's a great stock and I would own it. It's a little different. It's a little bit more volatile, but it's a very good company. All right, guys, look, I am still a bull. And you know i felt bullish ever since June when I saw commodities going in the right direction. I'd be very confident about wage inflation, too, if not... For Congress, They know nothing! All-man money tonight, the semiconductor doctor bears chipped away at Kramer-Fame AMD today after earnings. But is the stock deserving of all that selling? I'm going to check in with the company's visionary CEO, Lisa Sue. Then gold has seemingly lost its luster, right? So is it time to take a second look at the precious metal? I'm going to off the charts to find out. It'll be very surprising to you. And with investors shunning the COVID plays, should we be circling back to a stock like Timo Thermo Fisher I'm getting the latest with the company's top brass. So stay with Kramer.
2: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
0: What do we make of these results from advanced micro devices? Last night, the Kramer fave chipmaker reported what I can only describe as maybe, let's call it a complicated quarter. While AMD delivered a small revenue beat, their earnings were only in line. Their cash flow came in a little below expectations. At the same time, though, they left their full-year forecast unchanged, and their revenue guidance for the current quarter was a little weaker than expected, but they still said they'll make the error. That's why AMD's stockhold at least sank slightly today after roaring from the low 70s at the bottom last month to the high 90s. But was this really a bad quarter? Did it deserve to be down 6 when I woke up this morning at 3.30, has there anything really changed about the long-term story? Ugh, maybe they're just navigating through some temporary weakness in PCs and gaming. I like it, and I happily own it for my charitable trust. Please don't forget tomorrow's 12 o'clock club meeting. I want you there, but do not take it from me. Earlier today, I got a chance to speak with the implacable Dr. Lisa Su, AMD's turnaround artist chair and CEO. Take a look. Lisa, first, this was a remarkable quarter, and I think people don't understand the strength, not only because of Xilinx, but also because of the new chips that you have. So I think you should explain to our viewers who know that you are implacable and ahead of the game <laughs> how strong the quarter really was.
1: Well, it's great to be here with you, Jim, Thank and uh, we are very, uh, very proud of the quarter. You know, we grew seventy percent uh, year over year. We saw all of our business segments grow, um, led by the data center. You know, you've heard, we've talked about the data center. We've talked about how, you know, cloud players need the highest performance capabilities. And, um, you know, we're very pleased with the growth. We saw over 80% growth there. And we have a lot of products coming in the second half of this year. So it's an exciting time for us.
0: Let's focus on that for a second. You're coming up with a very small form factor of five nanometer. How many other companies are there to compete against when you come to the tech titans who won?
1: Well, there's no question that, you know, we're pushing the envelope on technology, Jim. And, you know, as much as we love our current chips, which are in seven nanometer, uh, like Milan, you know, right. our tour through Italian the cities. The roadmap of Italy. Absolutely. Um, our our next big thing is Genoa. And, uh, you know, Genoa launches, um, you know, late this year. It's in five nanometer technology it's a brand-new architecture, Zen4. It has a lot more performance and capability. And that's what you know, a large data center and cloud players need. So um, that's what we've been working on. You know, We're very much about you know, meeting and executing to our roadmaps, and that's so important uh, for our largest customers. Now,
0: I think what you said seemed to elude some of the people last night on the call because you're talking about a very strong back-end. Why not? You've got the best chips, and people are clamoring for them. In the interim, there was, I felt, an excessive focus on a much smaller part of your business than used to be, which is low-end PCs, which I thought people knew were weak. But it seemed to be the focus of many people.
1: Well, you know, I think um, what I would say is uh, AMD is a much bigger company now. I mean, if you look at all of the pieces that we have, you know, data center. Embedded Uh, and yes, we do have some of the consumer-facing businesses now. Jim, you know you've said it. um, You know many people have seen it. There is a bit of um, consumer headwinds uh, given the macro situation. Uh, We've taken that into account, and that's important that you know we de-risk that portion of our business. Um, But you know the key is that we have this uh, really great portfolio that you know we can balance uh, depending on what's uh, what's going on, and it's all about getting the best in the data center and in the embedded. Um, you know, business, getting those um, chips ramped and getting them to the customers who want them.
0: Now, I know the cash flow was disappointing to some. I'm trying to figure out whether that's because you had an inventory bill that we, you might not want. Some people feel that you have a lot of chips that you can't sell. And that's what that cash flow number meant. I think it's a little more confusing, but com- more complicated
1: yeah no i, I absolutely uh, no, not Jim first of all uh, we we don 't have excess inventory um, actually, you know when we look at cash flow we 're actually growing so much as a company that means that we do have to prepare uh, for the larger second half of the year, and there were also some tax implications as we went from last year to this year as we became much more profitable. but you know overall, I think the key is our operating margins were very strong. Um, you can see that across our businesses, uh, particularly led by the data center and the embedded businesses. And what, more importantly, it's what we see going forward. You know, even in this macro backdrop, we actually see significant growth. Uh, you know, we guided for the year, uh, full year, sixty uh, percent year over year. So we're very excited about. <laughs> I, what we I have, have to do. maybe
0: maybe five companies that had that kind of guide, and that's why I said. Right at the top, I didn't want to lose sight of the fact that this was really remarkable. Another thing that's remarkable is you bought Xilinx. It's very clear from the lift there that the combination of the two has allowed you to get chips that maybe, or at least, let's say, you were able to to accelerate the growth of Xilinx once they merged with you.
1: Yeah, very pleased with uh, the performance of the Xilinx business. You know, first of all, um, you know, as you know, it was a great business um, all along. They had, uh, you know, great exposure to important markets. And what we've seen is um, they were actually quite supply constrained um, last year into early this year. Uh, We have been able to accelerate that with more supply, with the larger supply base that we have. Um, What I can say is they are everywhere. So it's nice to see um, when you look at markets that traditionally are not AMD markets, things like aerospace and defense and industrial and test um, and communications. You know, 5G is ramping in the second half of the year. So those are things that, you know, again, Um, add uh, more capability and more resiliency to the overall AMD business. Well, should
0: we be looking at the company as an ever larger pie and ever shrinking portion of one part of the pie, which is the kind of uh, basic consumer section?
1: Well, that was exactly the strategy. I mean, that's been the strategy that we've been on from the beginning. You know, if you think three or four years ago, we used to be, you know, um, you know, 85 percent exposed to consumer. You know, today we're about, uh, you know, 40 plus percent data center and embedded. And, you know, by the time we go the next couple of years, you're going to see the data center embedded be the largest piece of our business. And we like that because that's selling to, um, you know, large customers, uh, really businesses, you know, cloud manufacturers and really. You know, what we're working on is like the three-year roadmap. And, you know, what do they need, not just this year, but what do they really need over the next few years?
0: Worth it to, to buy more common stock down here if it goes down? I know I was surprised that you didn't buy that much versus the allocation you have for it.
1: Well, uh, we do have a, um, a strong buyback uh, program and, you know, we'll continue to be op- opportunistic through these times. And we have a lot of confidence in our business going forward. So um, you can expect us to, uh, you know, to take the right opportunities there.
0: Right. Well, the a question that I can't resist. My mother always said that comparisons are odious, but you did pass Intel's market cap. When your stock was at five. At dinner, you told me that that could happen and that I was on the wrong course. It was gutsy. Candidly, I didn't believe you. Uh, I was wrong. You were right. How does it feel to, after years and years of the dominance of Intel, to be where you are versus them?
1: You know, what I will say, Jim, what I really like is the position that we have with our customers today. And, and Jim, the way I look at this is, you know, we want to be the most strategic partner in the high performance computing market. That's our goal in life. And um, I think we've made very good progress there. I love the fact that our customers are planning their future with AMD, and, and that's, that's what great companies do.
0: Well, the, my conclusion is, is that you agree with my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much, Lisa Su, AMD chair and CEO. And congratulations on her amazing.
1: Thank you so much, Jim.
0: Yeah, I'm going to be right back.
2: Coming up, giving up on gold. Find out what the charts are saying about this golden oldie. Next.
0: Let's talk about gold. This has been a bizarre period for precious metals. Regular viewers know that I actually am a big fan of holding some gold as a kind of insurance policy. It's against inflation or economic chaos. Historically, it's been very effective, but in recent years, it's really blown up in our faces. Last year, we had rampant inflation, and gold didn't do much for you. I thought the culprit was crypto. The people who'd normally be hiding their money in gold were instead buying cryptocurrencies because Bitcoin and Ethereum, well, they were built as safe storeholds of value, never mind that it wasn't true. But this year, the whole crypto ecosystem, as you know, has collapsed, meaning gold doesn't have much competition. And we've gotten insanely high inflation readings, worst in decades. Yet gold's basically flat for the year. You can argue it's trading like the Fed will have no problem beating inflation. That's the bull thesis. But it simply hasn't been working as a hedge against inflation in recent years. And I actually don't know why that would suddenly change now. In fact, ever since March, gold prices have been just hammered. A real ugly downturn. So is it time to finally throw in the towel and just give up on gold as a storeholder? Anything? Not so fast. Tonight, we're going off the charts with Larry Williams. Yeah, the legendary technician and market historian who's been doing this since I was a zip faced teenager. And I did. See this right here? I don't know if I covered it with my makeup. Larry's written more than a dozen books, and he's created a host of his own proprietary indicators, all of which you can find on his website, IReallyTrade.com, and which are used constantly every day on CNBC. On top of that, his recent track record, it's just is ridiculous. He called the COVID bottom in 2020 when nobody else wanted to touch the stock market. Then, most recently, he called the, the incredible latest bottom earlier this summer, right before the market took off. Yeah, he nailed this one, lock, stock, and barrels. That's why I keep going back to him. In short, Williams is great at spotting moments where everyone else is throwing in the towel, which means it's time to buy. Because everybody who is going to sell will have already sold. And he thinks we're approaching that exact same kind of capitulation moment in the precious metal. Larry points out the general public has had a miserable track record of calling tops and bottoms. Terrible. And that's especially true when you're looking at gold. So I want you to take a look at the weekly chart. This is the weekly action in the precious metal going back to 2014, paired with the CFTC's Commitments of Trading Report. That's that cot report I like to talk about uh, with data on the bottom. Now, remember, this report is a fabulous tool. The CFTC uh, tracks the future positions of small speculators, meaning home gamers, large speculators, meaning money managers, and commercial hedgers, meaning companies that actually work with the underlying commodity, gold miners. Right now, we're looking at the small gold speculators in gold. Okay, right here. Because Williams finds that when the small speculators get too bullish, it's almost always a sign that we're near the top. But when they get too bearish, it's almost always a sign that we've gotten the bottom of our on our own hands. According to the latest commitment of traders report, that's the COT report. OK, uh, small speculators are net long. Ninety two thousand six hundred ninety contracts for gold, which get this is their smallest long position since May of twenty nineteen. Right before we got a major boost in gold. By the way, uh, at gold's recent peak in March, these small speculators were long 279,000 contracts, their largest net long position in four years right here. So we absolutely know that they are on the wrong side of the trade. Now, as Williams is saying you, you should look at the small speculator contingent and just do the opposite of what they're, they're doing? Okay, that would be too good. But he points out in the last nine years, whenever their net long position in gold has been this low, the actual metal has rallied. And the, and the best selling points all came at moments when they had large, long positions. You know, So you can just see this, right? They didn't own a lot. And then, boom, look at this. Look at the way it spikes whenever they didn't own a lot. But it's not just the public that's giving up on gold. Take a look at the weekly chart of the gold futures. With Larry's valuation model on the bottom, this model shows the spread between gold and the U.S. dollar. Right now, his model shows that gold is very undervalued versus the greenback, which we know has been very strong. Something's been a real reliable arbinger of gold rallies in the past. See, it's wide. Keep in mind one big reason for gold's recent underperformance is that the dollar's been so strong. And this is yet another commodity that's denominated in dollars. But you know what might be more important than currency fluctuations? Oil. Williams has a very interesting argument here. He says gold bugs have been eviscerated because they expected the precious metal would rally in response to high inflation numbers. But in reality, when you look at the history, he points out that gold is generally more responsive to the price of oil than to any other inflation metric, like the Consumer Price Index. So take a look at this weekly gold chart with Larry's forecast for gold in red. This red line is actually just the price of oil push forward by eight weeks. He loves to do that, and I think it's very responsive. This has been a very powerful tool for predicting the price of gold in the, last, in the past. Look how closely they trade together. Williams says it's his roadmap, and based on the action oil pushed forward by eight weeks, he thinks now is the time to buy gold. His forecast says it should be ready to rally here. So where do, where do I come down? I know it's been very tough to bet on gold this year. But right now, the charts may finally be on your side. And boy, does that ever make a difference. Here's the bottom line. The charts, as interpreted by the legendary Larry Williams, suggest that the general public's giving up on gold en masse. And he thinks that that makes it the perfect entry time to do some buying. My view, you don't bet against this guy when it comes to spot and bottoms. He may be the best I have ever seen. Let's go to Keith in Georgia. Keith.
2: Hey, hello, Jim. Hey, I'm a long I'm good, listener, Keith. How about you? First time caller. And uh, I oh, want to great.
0: thank you for all you do for
2: all the, the retail investors out there. You're awesome. I hope you never retire. Thank you. Sure try
0: hard. Thank you.
2: Okay. This company, it reports next week. Um, what's your thoughts on Barrick Gold?
0: Well, look, if you want it on a gold stock, it's the one to buy. It's the best run company. But gold's been a bad investment. I have not backed away from Barrack as the stock to buy because it's certainly, believe it or not, done better than most of them. But uh, that's you have to be a gold bug to buy this stock of Barrack. Let's go to Nick in Colorado, please. Nick. Hey, Jim, this is Nick in hot, hot, hot Colorado. Well, we got the same problem going here. What's happening?
2: <laughs> wanted to get your opinion
0: on bail SA it has a dividend of forty-five, a yield of eleven twenty-five, and wanted to know if it was a good place to park some funds you're not supposed to go uh, buying that stock going into recession I think that even the bulls still admit that a recession is a possibility we can't let this one day influence our thinking that it's off the table even though you know I'm more bullish than almost everybody on air so I say let's stay away from valet all right, the chart suggests that gold could be ready to rally here, and it might be the perfect time to do some buying. Hey, much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with Thermo Fisher. And reporting a beat and raise quarter last week, I'm gonna dig into the numbers and uncover the strengths with the company CEO who's made us a lot of money. Then oil's pain seems to be tax gain. But is that warranted? Does it make any sense? I'll give you my take and all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay. With Kramer. I don't know. Maybe it's the rear of your mirror, but we have to ask is it finally safe to circle back to some of the higher quality companies that have really been punished for being what we call COVID plays? It's been lasting a while now, eight months. Takes Thermo Fisher Scientific. That's a well-run, no drama company that I like to describe as the arms dealer for life sciences and pharma. During the darkest days of the pandemic, Thermo Fisher made a lot of money selling COVID tests and big ticket equipment for companies that were developing their own vaccines and treatments. That was great until Wall Street went into post-COVID mode, which is why the stock fell from 672 at its highs last year to 588 today. However, the stocks rallied 90 points just in the last month and a half. And for good reason, frankly. Last Thursday, Thermo Fisher reported an excellent beat and raise quarter. The stocks sell up nearly 20% from its mid-June lows. And you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if it's got a lot more room to run. Plus, let's say you are worried about a recession like so many are who come on air. Well, this is exactly the kind of steady-eddy business that you do just fine. You know what? Don't take it from me. Earlier today, I got a chance to speak with Mark Casper, the bankable chairman and CEO of Thermo Fisher Scientific, to get a better sense of how this company's doing. Take a look. Mark, many of the people in the science business who had work that came from COVID have pretty much fallen off a cliff since COVID's run its course. You, on the other hand, have one of the biggest earnings beats I've seen in 2022. How's that possible?
2: Jim, thanks again for having me today. And yes, we had a really strong Q2 building on the great start to the year and, uh, you know, really a a great team effort. Uh, The team did a great job of delivering 18% revenue growth and 13% core growth and really strong earnings. The the business is performing at a very high level and uh, it's very clear as we look at the the industry, we had another quarter of uh, really meaningful share gains.
0: Well, I also like the fact that a lot of people are worried about recession, but this time... Your business model has changed rather dramatically. For instance, the industrial customer number, uh, the the uh, consumables. Can you tell us about the new Thermo Fisher?
2: Sure. So, so Jim, you know the company has a a very experienced management team, and you know we've managed through different environments. And if I think about, you know, ten years ago or so, you know, we had uh, about thirty percent of our revenue was serving the um, capital equipment uh, type of business, and today um, that's less than 20%. In fact, 80% of our revenue is services and consumables, and pharma and biotech, which is the least economically sensitive end market, represents about 60% of our revenue, and that's up dramatically um, from the financial crisis uh, back in 2008, 2009. So the company certainly has a, a very resilient portfolio today.
0: Now, when we look at the numbers in preparation to talk to you, the one thing I was concerned about is there have been almost no IPOs this year. So to be linked to biotech mm-hmm. means that you must have a solid relationship with the existing biotechs and have faith that there are enough companies out there that are going to be doing studies, even if they're not public. Is that true?
2: Yeah. So when I look at our pharma and biotech end market, the, the growth has been extremely robust. In fact, we had uh, mid-teens. Um, organic growth, serving that customer set in the second quarter, very similar to what nice. we had um, over the last few quarters. And when I look at that from the small customers to the large customers, uh, it's been very widespread in terms of the strength. And uh, whether it's our service business lines or our products, again, really strong performance. So while there's certainly some companies that haven't been able to tap the IPO market, you know, there's clearly money out there, and and our customers. Uh, are clearly choosing to work with us.
0: I had been concerned about a similar issue when it came to PPD, but it looks like that that's one of those things where you have an existing business, everyone wants to see you do another business, so it's an easy bolt on because they trust you as a partner. So this has worked out pretty famously.
2: Yeah, so in December of last year, we closed our largest acquisition in our company's history, which was uh, adding clinical research capabilities to the company through the acquisition of PPD. And the business off to a great start. In fact, we uh, raised our outlook for that business as well uh, during our earnings call. And we expect 12% growth um, organically for that business this year and uh, meaningfully raised the accretion associated with it to about $2 a share this year and raised our synergy outlook as well. So the deal is running well ahead of the deal model. And the reason for that is customers understand the capabilities, the benefits of the combination, and our team is just doing a great job on capitalizing on the market opportunity out
0: there. I I remember the original PPD. This is really quite exciting that you've done that. Probably the most remarkable thing in your your filings that I thought was, uh, many companies have had a dramatic fall off in China because of the uh, no-COVID policy of the government. Whether you like it or not, it has hurt business. Somehow you were able to turn what I thought was a certain headwind into what actually looks like a tailwind in China. How is that possible?
2: So, so, Jim, the team in China did a really good job. And, in fact, on our last earnings call in Q1, we said that because of the lockdowns in Shanghai, we thought that China would actually um, be a headwind in the second quarter. And the team really powered through it. And it was a combination of fundamentally what we do in terms of supporting, controlling air pollution, biotech drugs for the Chinese society, um, healthcare care in general. Demand has been strong. And we also were able to support the COVID response efforts in China. We generated about $100 million of additional opportunity during the quarter to support the effectively the testing regime that's gone on. And that combination of activities led to over 20 percent growth in the quarter. And uh, really, China continues to be uh, a strongly growing market for Thermo Fisher Scientific.
0: Uh, last question for me is that the free cash flow is extraordinary. The cash is building. I love it when you do acquisitions. Uh, Anything on your radar screen, uh, any kind of industry that you want to get bigger in?
2: So, Jim, you know, we have a very disciplined approach to capital deployment. Right now, we're making sure we do a great job with PPD, but we're out there actively looking. And I actually think the choppiness in the economy, that'll create opportunities for us. And we're ready to move when the right transaction's available. So you'll see us be active over time and continue to strengthen our company while creating meaningful value for our shareholders.
0: Well, that's what you've done over and over and over again, Mark Casper, Chairman and CEO of Thermo Fisher. Thank you, Mark. It's always great to see you.
2: Thanks, Jim, for having me.
0: Okay. Matt might be back at the break.
2: Coming up, Kramer wants to hear from
0: you. Your calls on the thunderous lightning round next. up And then the lightning round is over Are you ready ski the lightning let's start with Bob in my homestead New Jersey Bob. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, what do you think Pleasure. about mankind? Since its approval, okay, no one ever likes device. me to say anything bit about mankind. They love these hundred five dollars stocks. But what happens if it's not a good company? Does that matter at all to me? It does. Therefore, I say sell, sell, sell. Who else we have here? Let's go to number two. I like number two. It's Clay in Wisconsin. Clay. up oh, no, it's Parshutum. Parshutum in Maryland. Parshutum. <laughs> yeah, baby. Well, my person, 4,500 of these vehicles. The Army wants to study its vehicle platform, and one of its executives wants to work at Apple. I'm talking about Canoe. Is it a buy? Canoe, Canoe, Canoe? No, they just lose money. We're done with those stocks that just lose money. I mean, Lucid just reported tonight, and they lose money, and those cars are good looking. So we're saying X Day on the Canoe How about now, Clay and Wisconsin? Clay! Booyah,
2: Mr. Kramer. Thank you for all your Hurry hard out, work,
0: sir. I oh, thank you. I'll on the conference on call tomorrow. What's up? Whitney Corporation. Oh, man, I like those guys. They're very smart. I wish they had a bigger yield. Buy, but buy, I think buy, you got a winner buy, there. Buy, it's a very inexpensive bag stock. Now we're going to Anthony in New York. Anthony!
2: Hey, Jim. Calling about Verizon.
0: Um, where do you see it going? And is it a good buy? I think it's we'll going nowhere. Back? It turns out that all anybody wants is T-Mobile. Verizon is stuck in the mud. Perhaps they need to do a little kind of rethink of their whole game plan. They raised the price. Now everybody's going to go to T-Mobile. I'm not saying sell, sell, sell. I am saying hold, hold, hold. All right. Now we're going to David in Texas. David. Yes, sir. Hey, booyah. Hey, well, Dad. Booyah. Um, you know, you got to come down, have some Texas brisket with me and some pork I, rib. They don't let me. They never <laughs> let me go to Texas. It's unbelievable. I'm changing the desk. Where's the chain? You have the chain. All right. Okay, what's up? Uh, yeah, brass tack. Uh, so, this is a position I've held for years. I'd love to get your take on it. The trade desk. What do you think? All right, I think Jeff Green is terrific, but the fact is the overvalued tech stocks are not where to be. Those are the ones that go down even when things are rolling. I'm not done. I'm still doing more. I'm going to Mark in Texas. Mark.
2: Booyah, Jim, from just north of
0: Austin in Round Rock,
2: Texas. How are you?
0: I can't get to Texas twice in a row because I'm chained to the desk. What's up?
2: Well, they've had a pretty nice month, Jim. The past year has been really rough. With earnings coming up this Monday, I'm interested in your short and long-term thoughts on Luminar Technologies. Symbol the laser, autonomous driving LED. business
0: is a very hard business. I continue to say if you want to be in that business, I like Tesla. And yes, someone give some love to Ford. How about some love for Ford? I'll give Ford some love. I love Ford. House of Pleasure. First time anyone's ever thought of Ford as the House of Pleasure. Okay, let's let's go to Charlie in Pennsylvania. Charlie. Jim, thanks for being the voice of reason in the best of times and the worst of times. You Really helped me get through oh, the
2: prevail of the last thank six you. months, and I appreciate it. I'm thinking well, about Well, we had to stay in. I like said, stay good.
0: in, stay in. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Go ahead. Anything you tell me, i listen to. Fine,
2: get all the words in you can. Uh, I'm thinking about a, a stock that's showing good relative strength
0: and it has a solid dividend yield. And it's hitting all the marks you've been talking about the last six months. I'm thinking about community bank systems. Very interesting. Very interesting you brought that one. It is kind of like another one we had earlier in the lightning round. I like it very much. I think you should own it right here, right now. And that... Ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The
2: Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
0: When I was growing up, there was this magazine, Highlights, and one of the regular features involved two cartoon figures, Goofus and Gallant. The latter, gallant, would do the kind, intelligent, and prudent thing. But Kufa's always made the most rash, rude, and thoughtless moves. Unfortunately, Goofus is often in charge of this market. You have to bet against Goofus and go with Gallant at all times, just like when it was in highlights. So what's Goofus doing today? How about buying tech and retailers? What else? Goofus is selling all the oil stocks because oil's down nearly 4% and has a bad chart. As long as oil keeps falling like it is, I've heard it has now for seven weeks, Goofus is just going to keep following that playbook, blindly selling the stocks unless it's revealed that the retailers aren't doing well in the semi stocks are best highly uneven and at worst just bad investments. Then maybe then he'll switch. I can make this prediction because there are actual programs doing this every day, meaning automatic buy and sell orders. The machines are programmed by allegedly smart hedge fund and proprietary trading brokerage arms to buy tax and retail when they sell oil every time crude goes down. I'm not kidding. It doesn't matter that there's less oil being pumped than we need, or that OPEC isn't pulling its weight. The strategic reserve—we can't keep draining it. it. Doesn't matter. What matters is the chart of oil, which is terrible and a vague handle on the fundamentals, I say this is a goofus move because it's incredibly short-term, even rash thinking. The professionals used to set up baskets whenever they found linkages. Now we have ETS of all kinds that mimic the algorithmic traders, and they suck you into this kind of back-and-forth trading because you're trying to mimic fast-trading pros who need to make money every minute. But all you really are doing is being goofus. All right, let me tell you how silly all this is. First, the linkage here is simply false. Do not believe it. Think about it. Does it make any sense that meta platforms, the former Facebook, is up nearly $9 today or Apple's up $6 or Amazon's up 5 or Microsoft's up more than $7 just because oil's down? We actually sold some Microsoft for the Travel Trust. We're going to talk about it tomorrow at the 12 o'clock meeting because it shouldn't have been up. These moves were nuts. These are the much bigger moves than we have seen after great quarters are reported. Makes no sense whatsoever, but oil down three bucks triggers this guvus-like behavior. It's even worse when it comes to retail. We have Home Depot, Target, Lowe's roaring. But we have no idea how they're actually doing, do we? Forget the Target imploded last quarter. The only thing the traders care about is oil prices. Cheaper gas is supposed to mean more discretionary spending. Believe me, the fundamentals stink at the companies, as they do at Walmart.
1: Which we learned
0: after the bell is labeled hundreds of corporate workers. You will forget why you bought the retailers and curse at the program artists. You'll be stuck clueless. At the same time, the oil stocks, every one of them, has to trade down regardless of what they're doing because the gurus don't distinguish among them. Pioneer Natural Resources with more than a fifteen percent dividend yield, highest in the S and P, spectacular earnings yesterday. Even oil's down ten bucks lower, but then here, well, it goes down. It goes down after an amazing quarter. Same goes for Chevron and Devon, all, all of which are making fortunes at these levels, but it means nothing to the program. So what should you be doing? All right, well, let's talk about that. See, if you're going to buy stocks, I think you should look at individual companies, find out how they are doing. And if their fundamentals are good, then you should buy them. If they're bad, then you should sell them. If they're good for a long time, own them for a long time. In fact, today's the kind of day where questionable retailers can be sold at much better prices than you deserve as we sold some tax that went up too much. For example, the prevailing wisdom says that housing's rolling over. So there's no way that Home Depot or Lowe's can make their numbers. I happen to like both copies, but again, I wouldn't buy them here. Anything housing related is way too risky when the Fed's tightening like this. Don't be a goofus. But these are nowhere near as egregious as the sell oil by fang trade. People are selling Microsoft and Apple much more, much lower than now based on the fundamentals. But so much money is indexed to the sell oil by tech trade that they all sort. Frankly, it's insane. So please, I'm begging you, do not take your cue from goofus. If you flip in and out like these silly traders, I'm giving you a promise. You will almost certainly lose money. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you try to find it just for you, right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.